You're listening to the Bugcast, broadcasting from Studio B, from the heart of WBUG. Hello and welcome to the Bugcast. You're listening to the Bugcast, obviously, brought to you by me, the Bug. Uh, Several things I wanted to cover today in today's episode, and that would be portable music. Now, I didn't do a lot of research on this topic because what I wanted to do is just tell my personal experience about portable music and the lack thereof as I evolved as a human. Um, It all started in an episode of a um, an episode of Geek versus Geek. Uh, the other podcast I do with my partner, Gio. Now, this is interesting because we were talking about entertainment news and what was going on specifically uh, about um, how the the millennials and the Zoomers, the generations after Gen X, which I'm a part of, I am a proud Gen Xer. I'm one of the last Gen Xers. I'm on the younger side of Gen X, but um, I wear that with a badge of honor because uh, as as I study young people trying to understand and not be angry, um, I realize that Gen X has a lot of firsts and more specifically a lot of lasts. And... We were the first to experience portable music by way of Walkman. And uh, we grew up and we saw the birth of the Walkman and we saw the birth of the iPod. And um, it was very interesting because uh, this, 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 as, as my buddy George says, this was... Uh, this gave you the ability to put a soundtrack to your life. You could walk around with your own soundtrack, you know. And we were discussing movies. And one of the things that I miss about cinema is the is is a lot of cinematographers, a lot of movie makers back in the day. I think this kind of ended in the 70s. Um, and you see it with movies like Three Days of the Condor, Chinatown, um, a lot of avant-garde movies, film noir movies of the 70s. Um, and the original Thomas Crown Affair, where there's moments where there's no dialogue, there's no music, and the film just runs. You can almost hear the, the clatter of the film running through the projector. And it's just silence, and you have a moment there where the story, where the picture literally is worth a thousand words, and you don't have the music setting the mood. And everybody experiences that kind of um, moment in the film a different way. You know, maybe they're a little anxious because there is no sound, it's just a car pulling up to a driveway and you don't know if a conflict or a resolution is going to happen or you kind of see a man walking down the street and he's got no music, no... He's got nothing going on. He's just walking down the street and you're kind of experiencing that with him. But with the introduction, with the introduction of the Walkman, you're you're kind of like... Um, that's different now. It's perfectly possible to have some kind of mood-setting music going on. And these days, we totally use the term mixtape wrong. The true definition of mix... I think a lot of people think of mixtape nowadays is truly what, what we refer to as a demo tape. You record a few songs on there to demo your work... And you get with a band or another artist, get with a production team to finish it, to polish it up, you know. But here's a demonstration of a song I wrote. Instead of just writing it down in notation, 
you know, you just kind of get an acoustic guitar, you strum it onto some tape, you maybe have a few of these songs you're working on, and you take it to your band or you take it to your studio and say, hey, this is this is a demonstration. This is a demo of what I'm working on. And let's pick one or all of these songs and finish them up. Okay, that's a true demo tape. That is what is now become a mixtape. That would be called a mixtape now. I think we're slowly trying to get back to the right definition, but I haven't seen it yet. So a true mixtape is you you have tape, cassette usually. For me it was real tape because I used to record um I used to record off the public radio, um, blues before sunrise, a lot of jazz stuff that our APR you know, Alabama Public Radio would play real late at night on the weekends. So I would record these radio shows to have them to play later. And um, I'm going to get back to that, but radio is kind of not a thing these days. So the Walkman kind of introduced you to the idea that, hey, I could take a, a cassette tape and I could record different songs on at home on my big stereo. And then I could take this tape, which is has different artists. It's a compilation of different artists and getting the timing right, getting the most songs on each tape. Then you had your Memorax was probably the most popular. And you could get 90 minutes on one tape. You know, 45 aside, I think, maybe. Yeah, 45 minutes aside. And um, you would, you know, label it in Sharpie marker, you know. And you, if you were really cool, you would make your own tape labels and stuff like I did. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a computer when I was really young. One of the few people that did back in the 80s. But um, I did mixtapes for people, you know. Uh, I would, you know, uh, it's one of the things I used to do as kind of a sideline when I was in school and I would print stuff for them and everything. But one of the things I used to do is bootleg and, uh, you know, I made lunch money that way and, you know, I was able to save a lot of money, just, in, you know, a couple of dollars of tape. And it was a lot of work to do because first of all, I had to source the music. Okay. And then I had to, um, put it all together and it was all manual there was no computers involved in that the computer came in printing the labels and that was it and folding you know folding the the label so it would fit in the blank tape case and then take the blank tape case and what they had was a really good product what they would have usually is they would have a a front cover I wouldn't do any inner cover liner notes or anything they'd have a front cover then they would have a track list. Now, if they wanted to pay extra, I could get them a lyric sheet and fold that in separately, maybe on the other side or tuck it in there somehow, of maybe a couple of the hit songs on the mixtape. Uh, very few of them would want to pay for the whole tape to be lyricized, if you will. But um, that was one of the things that I, w I was happy to do to occupy my time and learn how all this stuff worked. And I was one of the few people that had the know-how and the equipment to do it. Um, like I said, I was just fortunate enough to have a computer to be able to do this. And making these bootleg tapes at got 11, 12 years old, 13, um, you know, it was pretty good because, you know, it kept me from having to get an after-school job until much later. And, uh we it was it was good and you know music was still you know there was a lot available on the radio back then you just wait and normally i would have the tape anyway and uh you know a teacher in the neighborhood she would bootleg movies off hbo and showtime and she'd have her whole basement covered with vhs tapes and she would rent those out to the neighborhood kids. It was free. You just sign the sheet. It'd be like a library. She ran it like a library. It was great. 
And she really didn't care what movies you got either. So whatever movie it was. And we would always go, God, I forget her name. I remember the house, and I don't think she still lives there. Uh, she was older at the time, but she was a great lady. I don't know what teacher she was because I never had her. But she lived in this neighborhood. She was a teacher, and um, she she had a whole basement. She would just record off of HBO and Showtime. She just had... Oh, my God, you'd walk down to her basement with her, and she'd just tell you, to, if you knew what movie you wanted, she knew where it was, but she'd let you look around. She had everything just really nice and organized, VH taps wall to wall. And it was one of those moments in time that we'll, we'll never get back. You know, you had me doing the bootleg music in the neighborhood, and you had her doing the bootleg movies. A lot of times we'd take one of her copies that she bootlegged off HBO, and we would copy it again. So it was like second, third generation. But we had a copy of it. So we take it home and copy. You know, a lot of us had had dual VCRs, you know, because uh, that's just what we did. So it was a lot of, uh, you know, I didn't get rich doing it. Like I said, I was able just, you know, make my lunch money. And that was cool. Even though, you know, I. I wasn't struggling for lunch money. It was just, you know, hey, if I wanted some extra stuff at the lunch counter, you know, uh, I had that ability. And a lot of other kids at school had uh, had their own thing going on. So, you know, you had one, you had a couple kids selling candy and snacks and stuff. You know, their parents had a freaking Sam's Club card. So I'd buy a whole shit ton of the mini the snack bags of potato chips and he'd fill his backpack up with those and he'd be selling them. And unfortunately the hammer came down in middle late middle school and early high school because of drugs. Um a lot of kids decided to start selling drugs in the hallways and um that that pretty much sealed the deal on selling anything at school and it was very hard to um very hard to do legit business at school because of the drug scene so the drugs were sold after school in the parking lot most of us had to split so being able to sell candy and bootleg tapes and you know for me i also did print stuff you know like pep rally banners, football game banners, stuff like that. Um, it was just uh, not not gonna not gonna fly anymore because it wasn't worth getting expelled from school over some bubble gum or bootleg tape. Even though what we were doing was legit, the drug culture ruined it, and most of the drugs that were sold were, was marijuana. And uh, I kind of, to this day, have mixed feelings. So, yeah, I've got somewhat of a mixed um, relationship with the marijuana situation, you know. Um, just for the simple fact that, you know, it interrupted a lot of legit stuff kids were trying to do honestly. And, uh, you know, it just got in the way. Because no middle school student should be smoking marijuana, let alone selling it in the hallways. Now, if you're 21, 22 years old, and you know you're you're in college or whatever, that's your business. But you know, a lot of the kids I went to school with had no chance of getting out of the projects. They had no chance of getting um out of the neighborhood. You know, and Teaching them that, oh, you're not supposed to do this. It made it more lucrative. And it unfortunately, the, the drugs were more lucrative. But it was not lucrative for us to start doing what we were doing again. You know, like the bootleg tapes and the freaking candy and snacks and stuff. 
it, it just made it more difficult. Now, I've been told several different things depending on different school systems. You know, some schools around here tolerate you selling snacks and stuff because it's not drugs. And then I've heard other people like, yeah, if you get caught doing it, it you know, it's pretty much you're selling things and they'll charge you some kind of crime with that. But back to the Walkman, portable music. Um, this this was a game changer. Because what now me personally, I had a Sony Sport Walkman, the yellow and gray one. Um, which I really liked because I rode a bicycle a lot and sometimes I, I got caught out in the weather. And um you know, it was water resistant. You know, it, it you could handle the adverse weather. It was really cool. Because, you know, I had 90 minutes of music wherever I was going, and that's usually plenty of time. Even to this day when I'm riding a bike, you know, I've got a Bluetooth speaker strapped to the front grill, you know, and I'm listening to music. I don't do the headphone things just because it's dangerous, you know. But, yeah, I've got a soundtrack going, you know, Bluetooth happening. Uh, it's a Skull Candy um, Bluetooth speaker. It's rubberized, and it handles adverse weather pretty well and uh you know i really don't listen to music on my phone other than that that's really the only exception and that's just kind of have a soundtrack while i'm riding my bike you know it kind of gives me a nice um it energizes me you know this is some heavy metal or something when i'm in traffic it kind of sets the mood or the tone of what's what's really going on there and um, just for me, the portable music, um, when the Walkman was more, became more popular, um, it was really cool because, you know, a lot, every kid wanted one. And they would take it to school and get it taken up and everything, but it didn't change the fact that that's what they would do. And so that meant demand for music and these, these mixtapes that I would bootleg uh increased um it increased and it was pretty good now i wasn't one of these business people um that raised the prices on people as demand kept up now if i was smart i would have done that because i would have made as much money and lessened my workflow a little bit but i just figured hey i'll keep doing this and I just keep making the money, you know. And uh, it worked. It worked for a long time. Like I said, till first year, first year of high school, it got difficult because of the drug scene. And um, plus, CDs were coming in, in into their own. This is mid '90s and uh, early '90s, rather. Um, I graduated '95 ish, so. Um, so we're coming into the mid nineties, early nineties, and the CD was a thing. So you're starting to see a lot less tapes and you're starting to see the CD Walkman come in, you, you know, and, uh, that was really cool. It was, you know, it was just as popular as the, um, as the tape Walkman was generation before it. Uh, but what I noticed to hit the market, and I never could get my hands on till very recently, and I still make, I'm, I'm going to expand this format, and I've said it before, but what I saw hit the market really fascinated me. It wasn't a CD, but it was a mini disc, and I was very fascinated with the mini disc technology, but it was extremely rare because um the market just didn't want it for some reason it was a smaller than a tape same capacity as a cd same technology as a cd it was optical um you could record on it you and the player was smaller than a walkman the player was about the size of a deck of cards if that and i was really fascinated i was like wow this is really cool now MP3s, digital music on the computer, didn't really hit until 
for me, 98, 99, somewhere around in there, I didn't discover that until right towards the end of the 90s. So I'm, I'm way out of high school by the time that happened. But while I'm in high school, the DVD came out onto the market. And then you had the um, you you had the mini disc, but nobody Sony didn't do a very good job of marketing the mini disc because what I did not know until much later in my adulthood, like I'm in my thirties, okay, is that you can get pre-recorded music on the mini disc. Now I thought it was cool from a bootleg standpoint because it's digital. You know you can. Get a CD, copy the CD onto a mini disc, and boom, you know, and you mark, you you price accordingly, you know. But I never could get my hands on any any mini disc technology or anything like that. It just was rare. It wasn't promoted very well. And uh, that was the thing. So after the bump, after the news segment, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue more about that. So I'll have the news here shortly. And now for the news. All right, it's time for y'all's favorite segment here. And I'm going to do it like I always do. It's going to be news to me. <laughs> news to you, news to me. All right, here. Let's see. First of all, it's not news, but it's very fascinating. I was on YouTube um, right before I started recording the podcast, and I noticed um, a trend happening. It's very fascinating. It's taking old photographs and old film and restoring them and colorizing them and and re uh, enhancing them to like 4K or HD, you know. And uh, what I've noticed is this completely changes the context of the subject of the time period. You're, it's really crazy. The film that I saw was a two-minute clip entitled A Day at the Beach from 1921, a hundred years ago, a whole century ago. It's just fascinating because... Um, you realize that it's not just history. It was real life, you know, and it it was just really fascinating to me, um, to see that colorized and it's not a hundred percent perfect, but it is a very darn close, um, these days and it's getting better. So it's not really music, but it is recording media. You know, you're, you're, you know, is a type of, preserving a moment in time um, through visual, excuse me, through visual instead of audio, excuse me again. Uh, so I thought that was, it's not really news, but it's fascinating technology that I would like to cover from an audio standpoint at some time in the future. And uh, it's very fascinating to me, but Having said that, I'm going to cover the news right now. So, kind of news. Um, okay, music news. See what we have here. Um, I heard that Kanye dropped a new album. I'm kind of curious to see what. If he's still following along the gospel route or if he's done anything different with that. So MTV still (laughs) considers themselves relevant. Okay, none of these people I know. uh, Kim Petra, Swedish House Mafia, Polo G to perform at VMA pre-show. Video music awards are still a thing. Where are you showing your videos? Not on MTV. Um, okay, well, none of these people are relevant to me. Um, Drake trying to look like an Italian mobster. Uh, 
Okay. Casey Musgraves. I like Casey Musgraves. Well, I, I like some of her music. Um, country singer takes a drive down memory lane in her latest music video. Uh, I don't know what it's called because they don't tell you, but check it out on YouTube if you can find it. Casey Musgraves. She did a Christmas song. It's pretty cool. I forget the name of it. But she did this one song. I think it's called High Horse. It's kind of catchy. It's it's stupid, but it's cool. Um, Let's check out my favorite. No, we'll, we'll wait. Before we go to Rolling Stone, we'll go to another site that I haven't done. This is musicnews.com. Um, Dakota Jones, okay. What about Steve? Uh, there's no, there's no real news here. I'm sorry, it's just a bunch of gossip. Um, Iggy Azalea, I have a real problem with her stealing the Iggy name, but okay. She's going into modeling. Big deal. Okay, here's Robert Plant news. Well, let's see what he has to say. Robert Plant says heritage bands are hanging on to a life raft. Okay, let's see. Uh, this is news... Is this Newsweek? News, it, said, it gives News Desk. Okay. This is still music-news.com. Um, it's under the UK News. Um, I would give an author title to this, but there is none that I can see. But uh, let's go ahead and read a couple lines of this and see what we have going on. Robert Plant says bands who stay together for 20, 30, or 50 years are hanging on to a life raft. The 73-year-old singer rose to fame as the frontman of Led Zeppelin, forming the rock group along with guitarist Jimmy Page, bassist John Paul Jones, and late drummer John Bonham in 1968. After conquering the globe, the whole lot of love rockers split in 1980 in the wake of Bonham's death. Reuniting for a few concerts in 1985, 1998, 1995, and 2007. Plant never wanted to stay in because he always yearned for new musical challenges and never wanted to look sadly decrepit on stage rehashing the glories of his youth. And that's what he has enjoyed about working with bluegrass singer Allison Krauss. In an interview with Mojo Magazine, he said, The good thing about Allison and I is that we ha we're a couple of kindred spirits. I'm sure you are, Robert. Most musicians form a band and stay in the band until it's over. 20, 30, 50 years, whatever it is. And it starts to look sadly decrepit. It's like people hanging onto a life raft or staying in a comfortable place. With us two, there's nothing written in blood. We were ready to do something new, and we knew how good it was before. So we can just join up again and see where we go. We've got nothing to lose. All right, let me talk about this for a minute. Um, I agree to some extent. I think Pink Floyd went on a little bit too far, um, in my humble opinion. Although they continued to do new music well beyond their for you know, their prime. So it wasn't like they just kept doing the same stuff over and over again. 
there was new albums, new music, and it was different enough. I mean, their music in the 80s sounded like the 80s, and their music in the 70s sounded like the 70s, and it became timeless. And um, there are some bands that just should just go away. The Ramones called it quits after 20 years on the nose for the same reasons Robert Plant stating, pretty much. And uh, you want your favorite band to keep going and keep going and keep going. But every time I see Pink Floyd remixing or remastering something, I'm like, there's only two original members left at this point. So why? Why? Well, there's three original members, but one of them's never, ever going to work with the other two. So... As far as Pink Floyd official, there's only two original members left, and that's never, you know, it, what are you really doing after? Like Leonard Skinner, I, I'm not really a big Leonard Skinner fan anymore because there's like one original member left, and the rest of them are just replacements. And it's kind of this incestuous turnaround of this band from 38, this dude from 38 Special, and this dude from Black. Uh, Blackfoot and this dude from I mean it, it just it's like government mule it's like government mule is nothing but Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner Leonard Skinner is nothing but Almond Brothers and government mule and it's just like when when you're a brand at that point you're not really a band you're a brand you know you're a marketing tool you know you have an image there, to me, a band is at its best when you've got creative people who kind of just fell into it and discovered their chemistry and magic happened, like Black Sabbath. The Beatles are kind of that way. You know, the Beatles started organically. They didn't just set out to say, hey, we're going to be this. They just fell into it. Pink Floyd, same way, you know, um... The original members, Sid Barrett, David Gilmore, came in a little bit later after they had the record contract. But Sid Barrett era, you know, they all went to Cambridge together. They they were they were mixing music with visuals, um, and it was a new thing, and uh, it just kind of happened. It wasn't psychedelic at that time. It, they always considered themselves progressive. And it's just very fascinating to me that um, it's very fascinating to me that you have the band. The Rolling Stones should have called it quits years ago. I love them to death. I love their music. But I saw their concert in 1994, and they were struggling then. They rushed through their songs. They just didn't feel like they wanted to be there. And it was very disappointing to me. I looked at that band completely different after I saw them in concert. And they were, and that was 94. I can imagine seeing them now. You know, it's like, we're going to hurry up and it like shattered. You know, they, they, the song was too fast. It's a fast song anyway. When you play it too fast, you feel it. And it's like, y'all don't really want to be here. You're just going through the motions. You're just an old band doing what y'all do. And this is another what politicians call a flyover state. There's nothing special here for y'all except ticket sales, and that's it. And I felt that. I really did. And um, it was like, you know, okay, you know, Rolling Stones really just need to retire. The Pink Floyd show, the spring before that, I saw the Rolling Stones in August. I saw Pink Floyd that in May. Uh, the Pink Floyd show was completely different. In fact, David Gilmore apologized. He was like, you know, it's our first time in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, sorry it took us so long to get here. You know, and they did an encore. Um, it was just amazing. So the performance that Pink Floyd did at that time, at that stage in their career, was light years ahead of what Rolling Stones did. And I was not impressed with Rolling Stones. It's one of the things that just sealed my fate as a Pink Floyd fan because they they care about their live performance. They're not just doing it for ticket sales, you know. And I think that's important because I'm a fan of the music. You know, I'm not, it's not my team. You know what I'm saying? It's like Pink Floyd is not the Pittsburgh Pirates. You know what I'm saying? I love all kinds of music. Pink Floyd's my favorite because it's what I can relate to the most. But 
going out there and exploring and discovering different music and different genres and just kind of hitting that gold pile of, wow, I've never heard this before. This is amazing. Um, you don't do that as a football fan. You've got your team and you stick with your team and everybody's, rah, 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 rah. You, you know, and that's it's hard for me to love football because of it. I mean, I'm a fan of Alabama because I live here, not necessarily they're Alabama. They could be a shitty team, and I'm I'm still going to be like, hey, that's where I'm from. That's where I live. And uh, I want to be supportive of them, but not, you know, it's like I don't understand. There's people that live in California who are Dallas Cowboys fans. Why? Well, you know, they have an excellent cheerleading program, and it's a great ball club, and but why? Why? You know what I mean? So, it, it to me, it's it's about the music. It's about the 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 uh, integrity of the music. Are you going to be one of these people that just throw it out there? That's the problem. Where, where you know, my buddy George and I we talk about it as as Generation Xers. It's like there's a point in time where people cared about what they did. They put a lot of work into it, you know, as far as the music goes. Now you can sit at a computer and just spit out something. Heck, I'm even guilty of it, you know. But I do try to, you know, I mean, I do try to put my best into it. But I'm not really, you know, I'm not really committed yet. You know, I'm getting there because, you know, like I said, I'm going back to tape. So... Um, these bands that have been around forever and ever and ever and ever, I, I understand that completely. And the Eagles did their 50 reunions. It was just getting old, you know, and they've been through lineup changes too. You know, my favorite, my favorite, um, lineup of the, of the Eagles did not include Joe Walsh, even though I absolutely love Joe Walsh. Uh, his vocals did not really present well with the with with the Eagles. His guitar work was excellent, but um, I didn't really feel like uh, I didn't really feel like he contributed vocally to the Eagles, like with their harmonies and stuff. They sacrificed greatly when that happened, and. Uh, but I still love the Eagles. But, you know, when they started doing their reunion tours every year, it's like, and, you know, Don Henley is an asshole. If you play any Eagles music online, like if you're teaching somebody how to play an Eagles song online, uh, he's going to bring you down. He's going to bring you down. And he, he himself has got a team he hires just for that purpose. And it's like, you're hurting your fans, dude. I'm not going to make any money off of teaching somebody on a YouTube video how to do this. You know, how to play Hotel California. I'm not going to make any, I'm not going to make your kind of money. I'll put it to you that way. I'm doing this as a fan for fans of the Eagles because it's a great song. And you turning into an asshole because you like dollars uh, as if you need any more. Just makes me less of a fan, that's all. And I'm less inclined to hear that Hotel California and have feelings of warm and coziness. I'm more inclined to have feelings of hostility and bitterness, you know. Because, you know, we attach our emotions to music, don't we? We, we put that out there. And uh, it's just... Uh, it's crazy how we tend to do that. And um, I don't know. I kind of went on a tangent here about that. And I'm not even done with the news segment. Take a look. That was news. But, you know, um, speaking of pop artists, okay, and Casey Musgraves, you know, on a contrasting note here, you know, um, Casey Musgraves doesn't aspire to become a huge pop star. Well, she kind of is. I mean, she 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 is already. You know, 
which I think being humble is uh is important, you know. Um now I was uh interested in this Kanye album and is it named Dondo? Is that the name of it? But it's number one right now, however you measure that. Uh Kanye West, Donda, laying straight in at number one on the official UK album's chart. Okay, screwing the rapper, his third chart topping record. Following his digital only release on Sunday, August 29th, Donda, named after Kanye's late mother, takes the top spot with 20,000 chart sales, 91%. Of its week one total. Is streaming equivalent sales. With the remaining 9% being downloads. In total Donda tracked. Donda racked. 33.4 million streams. Across its 27 tracks. Tenth studio album becomes his third UK number one. Okay. Well, that, that's good. I, I'm a big fan of Kanye. I think anytime you're brave enough to go against your peer group, musically, creatively, anyway, uh, you know you're 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 beating a your own path through the jungle. You're not taking the road more traveled. Um, you'll stand out. All right, now let's go to Rolling Stone, if I've got time here. I'm not sure. Uh, probably have got about three or four minutes left in this segment, but, you know, Rolling Stone will probably provide us with just that, three or four minutes of blurbs. All right. Um, becoming Led Zeppelin, see first clip from upcoming authorized documentary. Okay, that's why Mr. Plant is in the news. He's promoting a documentary, and I'm sure they're about to make some bucks off of that. Um, I'm kind of done talking about Led Zeppelin, but let's talk about this documentary. Uh, okay, let's see here. Becoming Led Zeppelin, the first ever band-authorized documentary about the legendary rock group, premiered at the Venice Film Festival Saturday. Soon after, the first official clip from the upcoming film was uploaded online. The one-minute-long teaser features pristine archival footage of the group performing Good Times, Bad Times alongside black-and-white stock footage of a Zeppelin hovering in the sky. Okay, so basically, it's just a documentary about uh, how they got started, and uh, they're just going to make some money off of that. I'm really interested. I already know how they got started. Uh, I know all about Jimmy Page. I know all about his session work. I know how they found Robert Plant and how he would join Led Zeppelin unless John Bonham came on board and the rest, as they say, is history. Do we really need a documentary about it? Okay, here, Drake is just a joke, okay? Drake goes all out to prove he's the sexiest in new way too sexy video like i said he's trying to look like a mafia gangster um there's a lot of news here that claim to be music news but they're not and a lot of these are just lies um okay let's see here I think that's about it on music news for for one minute here. Uh, let's see. Oh no, no, I didn't cover Billboard yet. That, that's one of my haunts. Um, let's see here, Billboard. What do we got, Billboard? All right, confirms Mark Nothing there. Okay, more Led Zeppelin is God. His documentary is really pushing the boundaries here. Jimmy Page attends Venice Film Festival for Led Zeppelin documentary premiere. Okay. Uh, 
Um, Andre 3000 says Kanye West collab Life of the Party didn't have Drake dish when he wrote his verse. Ah, yeah, cop out. Cop out, buddy, cop out. Who is this charming individual? Okay, never mind. Go woke, go broke. Not reading any woke articles from Billboard. Sorry. The rest of them are. Uh, NBC News? Anything music related there? Nope, 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 nope. Um, okay, let's see. Industry News. Um, okay, Drake still trying to look like a mafia gangster. Okay. That's not news at this point. We've seen that on five other websites. Um, uh, spatial voice concept like clubhouse in a virtual. Okay, never mind. I don't know what the, any of that means. Okay. Um, Spotify now allows podcast creators to download a list of their subscribers' email addresses. Oh boy, I don't know if I like that. And I'm I'm on Spotify. Um mm. oh boy, what do I need your email address for? What am I gonna do? Start spamming y'all? Okay, higher ups at Spotify, which experienced a noteworthy stock price hike yesterday after Apple relaxed its app store tax. Recently detailed podcast creators' ability to view the contact information of their subscribers. For reference, the Stockholm-based platform has made more than a few substantial investments in podcasting. Um... Okay, all right. Well, that's the news. I'm going to wrap this up. I have no interest in anything else going on right now. So, um, after the jump, we'll uh, we'll continue, probably uh, a wrap-up, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, y'all. We'll see you in just a bit. And that was the news. All right, well, I'm back. Um, let's see, we covered the Walkman. Um, going down to digital, from the Walkman to the iPod. Um, I didn't own an iPod. They were way too expensive. Um, but what I did do was I took the digital music and burned it to a CD, and then... You can listen to the CD on a stereo or really nice computer speakers like I've got now. I've got these uh, these clips, uh, the sixes uh, is what they're called, and they're six-inch woofers, three-way uh, studio monitors, self-amplified. I've got them connected through my computer via the optical connection, which is straight digital. So uh, everything is just... Sounds amazing, and they're 100 watts uh, a piece, so we got broadcast 200 watts peak. Um, and that's plenty because you know, I don't want to be knocking guitars off the walls, you know what I mean? So, yeah, portable music was a game changer, but alluding back to what, um, what I noticed, another thing that my friend George pointed out. Generation X is the last generation to deal with buttons um, and knobs. Well, he called it the the last generation of knobs. Uh, we have knobs. No, no more knobs anywhere. Um, TVs don't have knobs anymore. Stereos don't have knobs. Knobs are gone. Potentiometers are gone. And uh, this is pretty crazy to me because... Um, once he said that, I was like, oh, wow, my mind was blown because knobs are just gone and nobody realized, it, you know. And it was just very, very fascinating to think about that. You know, it's like, wow, what else disappeared without us really 
thinking about it too much or realizing what was going on. You, you know, um, knobs were just gone, just gone. And it was crazy because, you know, that's what I, I missed. That's one thing. I, I, after he said that, I was kind of like, yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm attracted to the analog world of the 70s and 60s and the 80s, you know, you had switches and knobs and meters. It was very tactile, very just clicky and clunk. When you turn, when I turn my stereo on, you flip that switch to clunk, you hear it, you know, the meters light up, you know. And it's like you're powering up a substation or something or launching a spaceship into outer space. You know, it was a very big deal. You know, everything, you know it's on. Like, nowadays, is this thing on? Because you got a standby light on your TV anyway. You know, it's always on whether it's on or not, you know. But when you turn an old stereo on, you hit that toggle switch, clunk, and then... Two seconds later, the meters light up, and it's like, okay, yeah, this thing's definitely on. And those days are gone. We have no knobs. Very few buttons, even, you know. And it's supposedly a clean look or whatever, you know, but basically the less buttons, the less knobs you have you're not paying for those parts and the product can be cheaper and you can put that price difference in your pocket at the end of the quarter and you're good to go. And, uh, I'm pretty much going to wrap that up, um, at this, at this juncture, at this point in time, I'm going to wrap this episode. Um, the follow up had really nothing to do with the main, chunk of the episode but um it's all related it's all related like i said i'm gonna explore the uh the button thing down the road and i'm also gonna explore the colorization thing down the road the equivalent to that in the in the audio world that'll be a future episode but I'm going to have to take my time and research that before I go forward. I'm not going to do a stream of conscious personal experience kind of episode with that. So um, we're just going to dive into that in a deep dive kind of situation without trying to get too technical. Because uh, it is a fascinating subject. I've I've done that when I had my computer shop. I've done audio restoration for people and media conversion. So I'm, it's something I know a lot about. Um, I know how to do it. And uh, so and it won't be next episode, but it'll be it'll be in a future episode. I've got some other things lined up for the next episode. And uh, we'll just go from there. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up and call it a day. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you for putting up with all the inconsistencies and the little production errors going along the way. Um, as always, you're listening to WBUG in Tuscaloosa, broadcasting live, sort of live to the hard drive, from Studio B.